good to have Gary and Aiden with us. And we'll ask Gary if he would to lead us in prayer as we open. Great God, we are so thankful that you are our Father, that you love us, and that you have redeemed us by the blood of your Son. We're so thankful, Father, that we have been adopted into your family and have brothers and sisters that are encouraging to us and the relationship we have with you and with Jesus is amazing. We are thankful that we have brothers and sisters that can edify us and strengthen us. We're thankful for your word that teaches and guides us. We pray that you help us as we study tonight. Open our minds and hearts and help us to live the things that we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay, a lot of times as we've started, I've written some kind of outline on the board and I've said, you know, there's a lot of ways to outline this particular psalm. I've said that a whole lot. Tonight I'm not going to say there's a lot of ways to outline. Now, you might give a different title, but this is the outline. Right. <laughs> now, why would I say that? I want, we're going to read this and I want to ask you, why would I say that? Why would I say that? Okay, for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamo. A psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwellings of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised His voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Salah. Come behold the works of the Lord. Who has wrought desolations in the earth? He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Salah. Now, why would I be dogmatic about the outline? About that being a place to break it? This is like a play, isn't it? Is that what you're getting at? That would have been how I worded it, but three part play. Well, it's what? What are you basing it on? Well, it just looks like uh, the same story with three parts. Okay, I, I think that that's true, but there's a magic word. Salah. Salah. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's one. But I think oh, okay. you're. I think yeah. it's right. Divides it into three parts, but the salah is the the breaking point. And because it appears after verse 3, after verse 7, and then after verse 11 at the end, I think that's the way to break this up. Now, I, I think what Boyd said has some truth to it. That in a way, the picture in verses 1 through 3 is the same picture in verses 4 through 7. And we'll talk about that. Uh, a little bit in just a moment. We're going to talk at the end of class, Lord willing, how this psalm teaches us about Jesus. 
how it informs us about Christ as we try to do at the end of each of these psalms. But always remember too, just think about fundamentally what God is revealing about himself. As these people pour out their words about God, what is God telling about himself in these particular psalms? These psalms, this psalm has been described as a psalm of Zion. It has been described as a psalm of, a song, a psalm of confidence. A psalm of Zion would be one that exalts the city of God. It doesn't use the name Zion. It doesn't use the name Jerusalem. It does use the expression the city of God in verse 4. And some and we'll say more, Lord willing, about that. It is a psalm that expresses confidence and trust. But but as we've stated before, the classifications sometimes are difficult and um, not always as enlightening as we would like. There were a couple of points in the um, Reformation that Luther was on the verge of execution. Um, And um, during that process, he is said to have written this song, written a song, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Those are powerful Words. I don't want us in the midst of learning new songs to forget about some old songs. The fact that they've stood 600 years, there may be a good reason for that. (laughs) Because they may teach a pretty powerful message about God. And you can probably think of points in your life where you've turned to this psalm. I know I can. God is our refuge and strength and very present help in trouble. Those words are each meaningful as they describe God. God, in verse 1, is a refuge. A refuge is a place we go for shelter when the storms of life are hitting us. We talked about Matthew 7, 24 through 27 on Sunday morning. The person who's built his house on the rock and the floods come and the rains come and his house is able to withstand it. God is our refuge. There are a couple of passages in the book of Isaiah that use the picture of a storm that comes and God is providing shelter in the midst of a storm. In Isaiah 4 and verse 6, Isaiah 25 and verse 4, He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our strength. This word strength, I saw that it's used 94 times in the Old Testament and 44 are in the book of Psalms. So the book of Psalms will account for almost half of those references of God as our strength. He's our refuge. He is our strength. 
He is our help, a very present help in time of trouble. But God is our help. I believe, I forget if it's the same word, but in Psalm 121 verse 1 and 2, I will look to the mountains from whence does my help come. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Even if it's the same, it's a different word, it's the same concept of God as our helper. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our help. And the New American Standard has the expression in verse 1 that He is a very present help. A very present help in a time of trouble. Do any of your translations have anything different there? For very present. Holman Christian says uh, a helper who is always found. A helper who is always found. Uh, if you wanted to just translate the words the way they're generally translated, you would translate this that God is very found. Very found. Now, I don't know if we ever use that expression. It's very found. But it, I think the idea is that God is always accessible. He's always found. Mary, you had your... I had a footnote. Abundantly available help. Abundantly available help. Those do good jobs at conveying the idea. What did you say again, John? The, the, the footnote? It is a, a helper who is... Always found. Always found, abundantly available. But God is there in time of trouble. Now, there are some Psalms that show it doesn't always seem that way to us, does it? It doesn't always seem that way. It may not always seem that way to you in times of trouble, but but it doesn't diminish the fact that it's true. God is our refuge. God is our strength. God is our help. In trouble. And verses 2 and 3 go to describe that trouble. We will not fear because God is our refuge and our strength and our help. We will not fear though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Though its waves roar and foam, though the mountains quake at the swelling pride, Salah. Sometimes mountains are given as a picture of what is stable, what is reliable, what seems permanent. Before the mountains were brought forth, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90, the Bible tells us. And the the mountains, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away. All, all, all it's a picture that the mountains, the mountains are often a picture of strength and stability, <laughs> something that we can count on to be there. But what if all the mountains slip into the heart of the sea? Often in the ancient Near East, as they told stories of how the world came to be, they pictured the sea as a powerful, powerful monster waiting to devour everything that had order about it. And to some degree, 
Um, the Genesis creation account tells us about water covering the earth and God making the dry land come. In a way, God brings order out of the chaos as well there in that story. But here, it's as if the chaos is swallowing the pictures of stability. I don't know what we would have to say in our language to convey what verses 2 and 3 are saying. Maybe if we lived in Ukraine right now, we might understand those words. If worse comes to worse, if our whole world is falling apart, if everything that seemed to be stable and secure is slipping away, God is our refuge. God is our strength. God is our help. And we will not be afraid. Is it easier to quote that verse in peace than to live it in difficulty? Of course it is. Almost everything is easier to say than to do. But the fact that we say it to ourselves in times of peace can help us remember it in times when the mountains are slipping into the heart of the sea. I I have to recognize it's hard for me to recognize this and emotionally connect with this, but I am getting older this weekend, this past weekend. Three people in my high school graduating class passed away. They're totally unrelated to each other, but each passed away. One who I was raised going to services with who had fallen away. And I can't imagine still, some of you may have lived this, but I still can't imagine, even though I'm getting older, and even though I think I'm ready, what it would be like to go to the doctor and to hear you have a few months to live. But that would be a situation where personally... Our mountain is slipping into the heart of the sea. Where are we going to look? To to whom are we going to turn? We're going to turn to God, the one who made heaven and earth. Now, more could be said. Did you have a thought or a question there about verses 1 through 3 that we should cover, we should say anything? I just love how he's our refuge and our strength. So it's like your place to hide out and but yes. then also get strengthened. You know, it's not yes. just cowering, but it's like yes. this like covered protection that also 
strengthens you to go out. Yes, that's right. It it is fascinating to see the different words that are used of God and what He does. Later, God is going to say to be our stronghold in verse 7. And that is a related word, but a different word. And so, you know, but it is interesting to see all the different ways God is described. A refuge, a strength, a help. A a stronghold, you know, all of these describe who he is. Now, in verse 4, there's a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns, the nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered, He raised His voice, the earth melted, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Now, Boyd stated before that in a way these are three acts of a play. Uh, In a certain sense... Verses 4 through 7 are the same scene of verses 1 through 3. Let me uh, defend that view. In verse 3, verse 3 talked about the waters roar. The waters will roar. Verse 6 talks about that the nations make an uproar. Now, these in Hebrew are the same words. And so as verses 1 through 3 describe what we might talk about as a natural calamity, I don't think it's meant to be literal uh, there, though the flood would be pretty close to that, you know, as the waters rise above the highest highest mountain. But, but, but I don't think it's meant to be literal. It's just saying if worse comes to worse, we will put our trust in God. But verses um, 4 through 6 describe the same situation as it depicts nations gathering for battle. The nations made an uproar. Just like the waters roar, now the nations roar. Now, also another connection. Trying to make connections between this scene. In verse 2... The text said the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. The mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Verse 6 says that the kingdoms tottered. The mountains slip, the kingdoms tottered. Again, that is the same Hebrew word. The mountains are slipping in the heart of the sea. The kingdoms are tottering. But I'll tell you, that word is used another time in verse 5. In verse 5, it is used when the Bible says, uh, God is in her midst, she will not be moved. The word moved in verse 5 is the same word slipped in verse 2 and the same word tottered in verse 6. Now this is telling the story of the song. The mountains may not be a place of security. They're as secure as you can get on this planet and yet they may slip into the heart of the sea. The kingdoms and the nations, they in the midst of their power and their armies, they will totter. But God 
will not slip. God will not totter. God will not be moved. And and in our song that we sang, um, just like a tree that's planted by the water, I shall not be moved. And I think that's based on Psalm 1, verses verse 3 in in particular. But but it's also this idea. The the security of the city of God is based on its chief inhabitant, God. God, in the midst of her, she will not be moved. If this is a psalm of Zion, as some have characterized it, if it is a psalm of Zion, it is mainly about the God of Zion. It starts out praising not Zion, but God. God is our refuge, and God is our strength. And in verse 4, there's a river whose stream makes glad the city of God. It, it is significant because God is in the midst of the city. Now, let me ask you this question. Can we identify verses 4 through 7 with a historical Situation Is this talking about a specific instance when all the nations came against God's people or is this figurative? I had, I had it written down in my Bible that this, a possible setting was Assyria coming against Judah. Okay. So that, that might have... Uh, might fit in some ways. I think, in, I think it comes the closest to anything we know. Of fitting, and what John is describing is a situation. Um, this is recorded in Isaiah thirty-six and thirty-seven. It is recorded in Second Kings eighteen and nineteen. And all the nation, excuse me, Assyria is coming against Assyria is coming against Judah. Did other nations join the Assyrian army in that battle? They did. You, you read that among other places in Micah 4, in Micah's description of that series of it. So it's it's recorded here historically. It is also alluded to in passages like Micah 4 verse 9 to <coughs> Micah 5 verse 1. Um, that is one of the passages that alludes to it. And so really what you have is, is an Assyrian army which also encompassed other people that they had defeated and conquered and other people who came to war with them. They are gathering outside the city of Jerusalem. They have already conquered 46 cities of Judah. There isn't a whole lot left of Judah besides the capital. Hezekiah is tempted to send off to Egypt for help. Because Egypt is the second most powerful nation in the world. By the way, the word help that's used in Isaiah 31, verses 1-3, through was the same word help used of God in Isaiah, or excuse me, Psalm 46.1. And Psalm 46.5 where the text says, God is in the midst of her, she will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawn. When Hezekiah found he was surrounded, he was tempted to send off to Egypt. And the prophet Isaiah says, their horses are flesh and not spirit. And they are men and not gods. They can't provide you help. They can't get you delivered. 
Hezekiah frantically went about preparing the defenses of the city and he tore down some houses and, and, and built, he fortified the wall in Isaiah chapter 22. And he also um, diverted water inside the city, which I meant to bring a picture of. It didn't. Um, but, I, but, but Isaiah the prophet tells him, Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Now, how easy is it to trust in the Lord when the most powerful nation in the world is outside breathing threat and slaughter saying, we're going to destroy you. We're going to kill you. And we've already killed most of the cities. We've already taken most of the cities of Judah. Archaeologists found a pile of heads outside the city of Lachish from about 701 B.C. of how the Assyrians just beheaded all the ones who resisted their rule. This was truly a time when it seemed like the mountains were slipping into the heart of the sea. All the nations came, but yet God said He would deliver And one morning, the Assyrian king wakes up and 185,000 of his soldiers are dead. 185,000. He goes home without conquering the city. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. God raised His voice and the earth melted. So, I don't think we can necessarily tie it specifically to one historical event. But I think what John mentioned, this is the closest we come and I think it is portraying something like that in Psalm 46. It's portraying something like happens in the time of Hezekiah. And uh, it is a it's a powerful picture. <laughs> Would you look at verse 7? Does anything catch your attention as being unusual in verse 7? This would have had to be something you would have probably had to think about going in. But he mentions God in verse 7 and verse 11 as the Lord in all capitals. And that is not common in these Psalms from Psalm 42 to Psalm 83. He is called the Lord. He's called the Lord of hosts. God is called the Lord of hosts repeatedly in the Old Testament. One of the commentaries I looked at uh, gave a specific number. It says that God is called the Lord of hosts 285 times in the Old Testament. But of all those times He's called that in the Old Testament, only 15 of them are in the book of Psalms. It's not necessarily as prominent in the book of Psalms as it is in a lot of other books. But here the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. 
So I do think it's the same kind of picture. One case, we can trust God in the midst of the most catastrophic physical upheaval. Then in verses 4 through 8, when the nations assemble war and they're beating on our doors, telling us that we're going to be next to fall, God promises to be our help. And, And by the way, I do think that it's very important to read these passages sometimes and reflect upon them. If God does not deliver us from a crisis, it's not because His power is weak. And the fact He doesn't deliver us from a crisis right now doesn't mean He will not deliver us in eternity. What questions do you have or comments on verses 4 through 7? Yes, there's another good example in Second Chronicles 20 where Jehoshaphat is challenged by the Moabites and there are several nations. Yeah, that's, 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 that's good, yeah. That is, that is the same kind of circumstance too. That's a different historical event. So I'll put these together. So they're linked. But Second Chronicles 20 comes before that in the days of Jehoshaphat. And he faces that same kind of problem as the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites are gathering against him for battle. And they win that battle without firing a shot, without doing anything in the battle. So... So that, that that's a that's a good illustration. Good illustration. What else do you all see? Okay. Let's look at verses eight through eleven. Come behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes the wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. And I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Salah. So God is calling the nations to witness His work. Behold the works of God. God has wrought desolations. God has has brought down nations. And and, um, God has sent the storm among them to destroy them. So come behold the work of the Lord who has wrought desolation in the earth. By the way, the word Lord there, again, the term Yahweh. But God makes wars to cease... He, he breaks the bow, the spear, the chariot. Do, you, do your versions have anything different for chariots there in verse 9? He breaks the bow, the sword, the chariot. Do any of your translations have there or as a footnote the word shields? Some have argued that that's a better translation. Deborah, you were shaking your head. What translation? New Living. New Living Translation. NIV does. But but there's a question of... But I think you see the idea is pretty plain. Whether it's chariot or whether it's shields, God is destroying all the military weapons. It will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. It's top of the mountains. And all nations will flow into it. And they'll say, Come, let us go to God of Jacob. Let us teach Him... Let us let him teach us of his ways. And we will beat our swords into plowshares and our spears 
into pruning hooks. Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, Micah 4, 1 through 3. It's a picture of the time when all wars and all troubles will cease. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two and burns the chariot. Now, I hear verse 10 quoted sometimes. Cease striving, know that I am God. Maybe some of your translations have be still and know I'm God. Who's being addressed there? Be still and know I'm God. The whole one, Christian uh, has it stopped fighting. Stop fighting. So, so is it is it those who are being attacked? Well, it, it seems like to me it might be those who are doing the attacking that are that are addressed. That he's calling the nations. Listen, learn from this. Learn, I am God. I will be exalted. It, it's the same kind of thing we see in Psalm two, John. Um, remember in Psalm 2, uh, the nations are gathering together against the Lord, against His anointed, but He who sits in the heavens laughs. And He will install His King upon Zion, His holy hill. And I will tell today of His Son, today I have begotten you. And I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And then He calls on the kings and the judges of the earth to to show discernment, to take warning, and, and to bow before God's King. In Psalm 2, verses 2 through 12. Now therefore, O King, show discernment, take warning. I think this may be... A statement that it is, it is, the nations are not going to accomplish anything by resisting God, by fighting against His people. And it may be a call to them. See, striving, be still, and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Now, we got a lot more to say. But right now, at this point, I'm just going over the text. Do you have anything to say? Anything more? Okay. Let's, some of this is very important, what the text tells us about God. We could, tell, we could divide, one writer divided the text up this way. What this text says about God, what this text says about faith, and what this text says about the nations. But it, te- it tells us who God is to encourage us to have the kind of faith where we can say we will not fear in the midst of the most catastrophic disaster. We will not fear. And what it tells us the nations is the nations need to the nations need to surrender to God. They need to quit their fighting against God. But we talked about this being described as a psalm of Zion. And we showed that this doesn't use the word Zion. It doesn't use the word Jerusalem. But there are a set of psalms that, that, that fall in this category of psalms that provide a very exalted place to Zion or Jerusalem. I think 646 does in, um, in a few verses. 48, which we will come to later, 
uh, 70, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, 76, 84. Uh, all of these are Psalms of Zion. Possibly, um, eight, or 87 does, 122 seems to me to be one that does in Psalm 137. Now, I'm not going to give you the full picture of what I'm about. We're going to save some of the things that I want to say about this for 48. I want us to try to, but I want us to try to get a little bit of feel of this. To, and we'll try to finish this thought off when we come to Psalm 48, Lord willing, in a few weeks. Um, remind me the name of that river that runs through Jerusalem in verse uh, 4. Well, we have some that have just been up in there. Um, you know, and it, and it exposes you to being asked a lot of questions, Bob and Susie. Um, what is that mighty river that runs through Jerusalem? You remember? The mighty river that runs through Jerusalem. Do you remember the name of it? Did you not learn anything on your? <laughs> I didn't bring my notes. <laughs> okay, do you remember Susie and go help us here? Well, the Jordan doesn't run through Jerusalem. Does no, it? the one that runs from the okay. God. It was a trick question. There is none. There is none. We drove all over. (laughs) You can verify that there was none. You can can verify that there was none. There is no river. It runs through it. Wow. I mean, why does the Bible say there's a river whose stream may plow the city of God? I mean, there was a spring there. What was the name of that spring? Do you remember? Gihon. Gihon. Gihon Spring. One of the places it's mentioned is when Solomon is made king. Uh, 1 Kings 1, 32-33. But, but this picture of a river running through Jerusalem it really doesn't stop here. David, do you have a I think in the book of Revelation, there's the river of life okay. running through the holy city. The okay, Jerusalem. very good. We're going to put that, David, down here. Because we got a couple of examples before we get there. Um, Ezekiel 47 has the picture. I love this picture. Um, you got a trickle of water. That comes out from the temple. I mean, it's just it's just trickling. It's just trickle of water. And yet, this 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 river is going to get stronger the further it gets from its source. It goes. It just at first there's only a trickle, and then it's about knee high, and then it is waist high, and then it's a ford that nobody can cross. And wherever this water goes, it brings life to everything it touches. It brings life to everything it touches to such a degree that the water flows to the Dead Sea. And there are fishermen that are fishing off the bank of the Dead Sea. Now the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea for a reason. It's about 30% salt. And no fish that 
makes it there, survives. And yet fishermen are fishing there. Here is water that flows from the temple in Jerusalem. It is flowing and giving life to all. That same kind of picture is in Joel 3. And in verse 18, Joel 3 verse 18 uses this same kind of picture. It says, It will come about in that day that the mountains will drip sweet wine, the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and the spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. And you see the same thing in Zechariah 14, uh, 14 verse 8. It will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea in the summer as well as winter. Now, what David said was a very good comment. It was a very good comment. But the Old Old Testament prepares us for this in several fashions about this picture of, of a water of life and flowing from the throne of God. Uh, by the way, you said the name of that spring, Gihon. Do you remember the names of those rivers in the book of uh, Genesis? Four rivers in the Garden of Eden. Two of them you know. Tigris and Euphrates. But what else do we find? One of them... The Gihon. Is that by accident? That, that you have that spring in Jerusalem. And that you have... That is one of the names of the, gar- the rivers of the Garden of Eden. And is somehow this picture of Jerusalem, and we, we want to pursue this further in a couple of weeks, okay? I, right now, let's just talk about this, give you some of the data, and let you be thinking about it. But is, does this description of Zion and Jerusalem prepare us for something bigger than just a physical city of Jerusalem? Is it preparing us? Is it telling us something bigger? Because God's choice of Jerusalem was a key part of the Old Testament. There's a passage in Psalm 78, historical Psalm, Psalm 78, verses 67 through 62, or excuse me, 72. It talks about God's choice of David. God chose David, but also God's choice of Jerusalem. Just like God chose David, God chose Jerusalem. Now we know God choosing David is a big deal that really from 2 Samuel 7 on affects the trajectory of the rest of the Bible. Maybe God's choice of Jerusalem is a pretty big deal too. But but maybe Jerusalem is bigger than just physical Jerusalem. Just not talking about the city. But 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 I want you to pers- I want you to take some of this, think about that, pursue it, and we'll talk about this more fully when we get to Psalm forty-eight, Lord willing. Now, so that an introduction to the Psalms of Zion. 
when you try to ask these questions, how do these psalms point us to Jesus? How they point? How does it point us to Jesus? What, what do you think about here in this connection? So, Tommy, um, in the high school class, we've been studying the minor prophets, and so yes. Sunday we we. Uh, been talking about Zechariah and man, it, it, I'm just this whole psalm has just been echoing yes. um, so many of the themes that we've been discovering in there. Mm-hmm. Um, just that point about uh, verse eight, nine, ten, those ideas of him breaking the bow. I, I couldn't help it. We just studied uh, Zechariah nine, is it right? uh, yeah. verse nine and ten. Uh, it just says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. I just couldn't help but think about that. Of Jesus, and we talked about the contrast between him being humble yeah. and doing those warlike things. And so yes, it, it, yes. it was very interesting. And, and of course, Zechariah nine, nine and ten, which I really did meant to put in my list earlier, uh, but I had right here on the board. Um, but but it's probably it's good that we saved it for this point because that is specifically quoted in the New Testament as being fulfilled in the triumphal entry of Jesus. In Matthew twenty-one four and five, and uh, is it is does Matthew um, give the longest quotation of that, or is that Mark eleven that gives the longest quotation of that? Um, no, uh, Mark eleven doesn't quote it. It might be John. It's John twelve that quotes it. But but this this triumphal entry of Jesus, which is recorded in all the Gospels, in Zechariah nine, is specifically quoted in John um, in John twelve and in Matthew twenty one. John twelve fourteen and fifteen, and the Bible says in John twelve, his disciples didn't recognize it till afterwards. So Jesus is the Prince of Peace who is coming ultimately to to stop all wars, to cease all wars. Now, Revelation 19 shows the way he's going to do that is he's going to trample you know, all enemies under his feet. Um, that and several other things. But, but that's a very good, very good connection to make. And again, that's one that's just specifically quoted in the New Testament. What else, David? It talks about God being our refuge. Okay. Jesus uh, identifies himself as being a refuge. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Okay. Jesus. Uh, among other places. That's right. Jesus is our refuge, our strength, and our helper. You know, all these. Um, all these things. And, and, and David quotes. A great invitation there in Matthew eleven twenty eight through thirty. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. The Bob, yeah, on those in the first that 
first three verse section that we studied, what came to mind to me was uh, Romans eight thirty five through thirty nine. You know, who shall separate us from the love of God? And then it yes. talks about all yeah. the upheaval that can come upon our lives, uh, and you know, and all these things were more than conquerors. That's right. That's a good point. That Romans eight is truly when the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. I mean, for your sake, we are being slaughtered all day long. We are, I mean, for, we are led as sheep, all day long, we are led as sheep to the slaughter. And yet, still, none of these things can persuade us that God is not with us, that God will not bless us. Those are good thoughts. Good thoughts. Um, one other one that came, that, that, that one, and this is not typical that this writer was is one that calls attention to it. But the words come and see. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Nathaniel was told. And then when he sees Jesus, he says, You are the king. Of Israel, this psalm has something to say of God as King, doesn't it? But also, in Psalms, cease striving and know I am God. In Greek, This is the phrase, I am, and this is the way that the I am statements of John are introduced. Not John 9, 5. It is introduced a little differently. But these statements are introduced with this I am. All those from the Gospel of John. Jesus is saying, in a sense, with His miracles of feeding the 5,000, with opening the eyes of the blind, with raising Lazarus, cease striving and know that I am God. But I want to tell you something that's pretty striking, though. Um... The word you and, and I'm and I'm I'm looking closely because I, I may have got my verse. Some of the Hebrew counts the title as verse one, so this could be a little confusing. But when the Bible says, "I have," this is what I have in my notes. I need to check this. But the word that is used in the Greek translation about how we will not be troubled. Is used of Jesus in the face of the cross, he said he was troubled. In a certain sense, the cross or the mountains sinking to the heart of the city. 
and the nations were gathering against God's people and taunting. And yet, because Jesus was troubled, Jesus says in that same context, the same word used of Jesus, He uses to tell us, do not let your heart be troubled. Because He goes through these troubles, we do not have to be troubled. Three times, verse 10 says, I will be exalted. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. Um, well, it says it at least twice. I think it says it three times. Well, it says three times in the Hebrew text, in the Greek text, but I may be wrong. But you know the words exalted? It's the same word translated, in the, in the Greek translation, it's the same word translated, lifted up, when Jesus said, if I be lifted up in John 3.14, in John 8.28, in John 12.32, if I be lifted up, Jesus was exalted. Jesus was exalted before the nations. Jesus was lifted up in the cross. And the same word that's used to Jesus being lifted up in the cross is used for Jesus being lifted up in the resurrection and the ascension in Acts 2.33, in Acts 5.31. He is exalted. He is lifted up. And He's going to be lifted up by giving Himself for us. All these psalms, in a, in a certain way, tell the gospel story. Psalm 46, it's no exception to that. What have I left out, Mary? Um, I was reminded in verse 5, God shall help her at the break of dawn when Jesus arose <laughs> yeah. before dawn. Good point. Good point. The women go to the tomb term tomb early in the morning. And, and 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 I have just in I have realized even this past few days in looking back over this, maybe that dawn in the early morning, maybe it's just no accident. Because here's a statement made in um Exodus 24, or excuse me, Exodus 14. Let me see. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak. Exodus 14, 27. Even the, even the destruction of the Egyptians, the crossing of the sea and the destruction of the Egyptians happens at break of day in Exodus 14. Verse 27. And you remember that, that we, we pointed out before that the text says, let me, let me look to see exactly how it says it about Sennacherib in, in 2 Kings. Um, that night the angel of the Lord struck 185,000 when the men rose early in the morning, behold, all the men were dead. But, but, but Mary adds, they come to the tomb early in the morning. And the tomb is empty. I mean, 
ultimately one of the most compelling arguments you can make for the Bible being from God is all these little threads that are connected. The weakness of the argument is because you've got to know the Bible to appreciate that. You've really got to know it to appreciate it. But the strength of the argument is for people like people here who know those points. This thing doesn't just happen by accident. I mean, this is all carefully tied together for a purpose. But that's a good point, Mary. What else? What else do you have? Okay, thank you all. And we'll have Brad lead us in a song in just in, in just a moment. Uh, we are glad to have Bob back and uh, Bob and Susie back. And we'll have Bob lead us in closing prayer. <clears throat> oh God, how precious to us are the words that you have prepared for us. For us to, Heavenly Father, uh, read and take into our hearts and let them guide us. For, Father, we know that if we listen to what you've given us, uh, these words will lead us into your presence. Father, help us, O God, to appreciate and to cherish what you've done for us and what you will do for us. O God, bless Uh, these studies that we have and help us God to uh, be built up together in the most holy faith Father we love you and we thank you for your loving care and tender mercies through your son Jesus Christ we pray in his name Amen Amen Again, just for clarification, we're singing through these psalms uh, with a, a version that we kind of know, and um, it's been fun to hear these same words in a song form like they might have sung it. So, um, In verse 2 on the third line, it uh, uses the word I, A-Y-E. Uh, we often use that in voting, you know, all, all in favor say I. You say I, that means I agree. In this case, when it says for I, it also means always or ever. So um, it basically is saying unmoved, she stands forever in that instance. And so they're rhyming with day, so it's A to rhyme with day. So anyway, just clarification on that. You got the wrong one. You gave me Psalm 47. Oh, I must have... Uh, Picked up. Anybody else have the wrong one? 46? 46 is the one we're on. It may have gotten in the wrong stack over here. So, thanks. Um, On the last verse, so verse 5, let's uh, repeat that phrase, a refuge strong and sure. So, when we get to the final ending, we'll sing that phrase one more time. So God is a rare. 
confusion of string in streets of present day. And therefore, though the earth removed, we will not be afraid. Though hills of mist are seized, because though troubled waters roar, yea, though the swelling billows shake the mountains on the shore. A river is whose streams make glad the city of our God. The holy place wherein the Lord most high has his